0: good? So does anybody, yes, a question? No. No, I'm joking. Yeah, you can. (laughs) Of course you can. That was not nice. I'm sorry. But we're still friends. So anybody have a birthday in April that wants to stand up? Stand up. All right, do you know or do you want to share? Um, Healing? Healing. Garrett? No, whatever you want from God. (laughs) So no, you can't pray for him about that. We're all focused here. Garrett went to our church for several years, uh, he and his wife, and he is now on staff at a church in Peachtree City. Yes? I can't see That's fine. We'll take you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Good. Is there anybody in the back? Does somebody in the back stand up? What you got? Okay. That's good. Elizabeth? Perfect. Perfect. Anybody else? No, you have to stay standing. Sorry. Anybody else? All right, y'all gather around these guys and pray for them. Y'all go ahead and start praying. I'll pray in a second. If you don't feel comfortable gathering around someone, then you just bow your head and pray in your seat. Y'all go ahead and pray again. If you're not, you can just pray in your seat if that's uh, easier for you. God, we thank you that you're not just the king of the universe, you're also our Father. That is grand and great as you are, majestic as you are, you also are as near to us as our next breath. And my prayer for each of these requests is that you would answer them in a way that has your fingerprints all over it, that the men and the women standing would know that you heard them, that you care, and that you acted. God, you say clearly that you're a father who desires to give good gifts to his children. And so our prayer is that you would give these good gifts to these men and women who are standing here today. That you would do this over the course of this month as a happy birthday, I love you, present. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. Thanks for doing that. If that was uh, awkward for you, just don't come on the first Sunday of any month and you'll... (laughs) Get to avoid all of that my intention was not to make anybody feel weird if you've got a Bible in Mark 7 last week we were looking at this passage and kind of the the, the thing we we're talking about was this show and tell that god's desire for us is to conform us into the image of Jesus He wants us to look as much like Jesus as possible, and with Jesus there was a message and there were actions that backed the message. Um, He not only preached the gospel, told people the truth, he also demonstrated the reality that the kingdom of God had come. And we talked about that, and that for us, as people who want to be conformed to his image, God expects the same thing. He expects us to be people who can talk, who can deliver the message verbally, as well as demonstrate it through actions. we said for most of us, we tend to show when we should tell, and we tend to tell when we should show. When it comes to actually communicating the gospel, we say, well, I'm just going to love people and see if they can connect the dots on their own. That's showing when we should tell. And when it comes to praying for others, expecting God's kingdom to come, all of these things that Jesus promised us that would be the result of his resurrection, healing, direction, God leading people, deliverance, all of that stuff, we tend to talk about it, but we're not necessarily willing to engage and demonstrate that. So I'm going to just... Kind of flesh that out a little more today, looking at these next two stories. So this is starting in verse 31 of Mark 7. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the, man ear, into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Then he looked up to heaven, with a deep sigh he said to him, eph which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been here with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The disciples Excuse me, the people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Delmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. A couple of things I want to pull out of these two stories. One, again, this whole idea of becoming more like Jesus, it helps to know who he is. If you can see the um, the box top for the puzzle, it's a lot easier to put the puzzle together. You know what you're going for. Three characteristics that we see here in Jesus that God is trying to work in us. The first is compassion. The word translated compassion in uh, chapter 8, verse 2 is kind of a weird word. It's, it's splot, nitsomai, I think might be. The best way to say it, it literally means to be moved in the bowels, which is gross. But for the the thinking at that point was that love and pity are seated in the bowels. So it means to be moved with compassion. The word is used several times in the New Testament, but always in the Gospels. And I just want you to look at this list so you can get a feel for how it looks. Jesse, if you'll show those. So you see the first one, he had this compassion for people because they were harassed and helpless. So he prayed. God sent workers, and then he sent the 12 out. The next one, he had compassion. He healed their sick. He had compassion, and so he fed them. The next, he, This uh, next one uh, is a parable. The master had compassion for his, someone who owed him money, so he canceled the debt. had compassion, and he healed. Compassion, he reached out his hand and healed someone. Compassion, so he taught. Uh, this last one is a story. A, a man, Jesus comes off a mountain, his son. Is uh, demon possessed and the, the father goes to Jesus and says if you can do anything have compassion upon us and help us and Jesus heals the son uh, compassion and he raises a woman uh, a woman's son from the dead the next to the good Samaritan you know that story he has compassion and this guy takes care of the needs of this injured traveler who he sees and the last one's from the uh, prodigal son the father has compassion and so he runs to his son throws his arms around him and kisses him and what you can see in all of those the common theme is that compassion leads to action it's not pity pity is oh bless his heart i see that something's going on i acknowledge it but i'm going to keep moving compassion biblically it's different it's i see something's going on i'm moved in my heart and i'm going to do something about it there's all that's that's every occurrence of that word in the new testament minus the parallels and in every one of them you see there's always an action following this feeling of compassion. First thing. Second thing, kindness. You see this in verse 33 and 34, this weird deal, Jesus spitting and touching the guy, which is gross, and putting his fingers in his ears. I think what's going on there, you've got a deaf man. He can't hear what Jesus is saying. He can't understand what Jesus is about to do. So Jesus pulls him out of this crowd. I'm not going to make a spectacle of you. You're not on display. This is not a show. And I think he's doing charades. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal your ears, and I'm going to make it so you can talk. I don't get the spitting thing, but whatever. He does that, and I think all of it is in his kindness. He's trying to communicate to a guy who doesn't communicate well, this is what's going to happen. Compassion is why we do what we do. It's our motivation, and kindness is how we do it. We do things with kindness. I think that's a hard word for us to define. It's kind of one of those... Base level words. We know it when we see it. We don't necessarily know how to how to define it. I would say, just for our sake, kindness is not the same as being polite. Those are not synonymous. Biblically, someone can be polite and that masks a heart of cruelty. Actually, that just means they know how to play the game. To be kind biblically, there's a moral quality to it. The word can also be translated goodness in some in some cases. It means to um, have a generous spirit towards somebody else. And for us, we want to hold both of those together, kindness and compassion. Jesus did, and we want to. To have compassion without kindness can lead you to be self-righteous, or it can cause you to run people over. You've, you've met folks like that. They have a cause, and it might be a great cause. I'm pro-life, or I'm, you know, whatever the, the environment, or the poor, or human trafficking, whatever. They've got a flag, and it's a great flag that they're flying. And they'll run you over if you're not a part of their thing. They don't understand how you, and there's no, again, compassion without kindness can cause you to be self-righteous. And you just have a trail of broken bodies behind you, all for the sake of the cause. Kindness without compassion for us, I think, kind of devolves into just being nice. And those are not synonymous either. A lot of times we say, just play nice. That's what we tell our kids, just play nice. And we mean that, just play nice, pretend You don't really have to like the person. Just get through this encounter. Don't ruffle their feathers. Don't upset them. Just get in, get out, move on. That's not the same thing as kindness. I can be nice to you and allow you to wallow. I can be nice to you and not do anything to actually help you. Kindness requires me to do that. Again, it has this moral quality to it, this idea of doing good for somebody else. Not just keeping the peace at any cost, that's being nice. Being kind says, I'm willing to risk some conflict here to rub you the wrong way for the sake of good in your life. So we need both of those kindness and compassion. Most of, most of us tend to fall one way or the other. We tend to be someone, yeah, we get it. We're passionate, we're zealous, we've got this, we have this, these things that we're fired up about. And we run people over for the sake of that. Or we're way over here. We're super nice. We're friendly. Everybody likes us. But we never truly engage folks in terms of helping them. Kindness and compassion, hold them together. Last one. Power. Verses 36 and 37. Jesus commanded them, don't say anything about what I've done. The people were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That's a big deal. Someone who's deaf to be able to hear and someone who can't talk. He, he probably wasn't mute. He had some type of stuttering, stammering problem. Jesus healed him. And then to feed 4,000 people with a handful of food, that's a big deal. That's power. Read the New Testament. Jesus is known as a man of power. Luke four fourteen, when Jesus comes out of the wilderness after he's been tempted by Satan, Luke says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's power. That's what enabled Jesus to do what he did. He didn't perform miracles because he was divine. He performed miracles because he was full of the Holy Spirit. That's what we mentioned last week. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are too. You've been given the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this same power, Romans eight eleven, that raised Jesus from the dead is also resident in you. So everything Jesus did, we can do. He says, you'll do greater things than me. That's a promise for all of us if you're following Jesus. This whole idea of power, again, its that's part of who we need to be. If compassion is what motivates us and kindness is how we act, power is the ability to actually do something. Now, when we begin to talk about this whole idea of power, for a lot of us, it, it opens up a can of worms. It makes us step back. Three people come forward with a bad back. One of them's healed instantly. One of them's healed and. The course, of the next few weeks, with, they go to the chiropractor, and they take muscle relaxers, and they get prayer, and they rest, and they stretch, and it gets better. And somebody else has a bad back for years. And what we want to know is, how does, how does that work? Was this person more faithful? Did they get a better person to pray for them? Is this guy being judged? You know, kind of how does that, we want to know. How, how do we, you know, it, for most of us, we want to know, tell, tell me the rules of the game. Even if they're really hard rules, just tell me the rules, so then I've got a guarantee. Tell me how high I have to jump. I don't know if I can jump that high, but I want to know if I do jump that high, I'm guaranteed certain results. It doesn't work that way with all of this power stuff. With these spectacular manifestations of God's power, let's talk about healing, that's the easiest one to grab onto. There There aren't rules. And that frustrates us. We mentioned this a little bit last week. It's awkward. If I pray for Brandon and he's not healed, then I feel inadequate because I prayed for him. And, well, maybe you should go get somebody else. And he might feel silly or stupid or less than. Well, how come God didn't heal me? There must be something wrong with me. I didn't have enough faith. You know, I cussed this week, and so God is punishing me for that. Or You know, whatever it is. And then God, we don't even know how he looks in the whole thing. Does he look like he doesn't care or that he's... Unable this it's just weird for us against a black box, and we can't open it up, so for most of us we just we withdraw from that whole arena and leave that for other people and other places it's not for us because we don't get it there's not enough guarantees it's not clear enough how do I engage successfully in this, and so we pull back not good at all again that's a expectation, if we're going to be conformed into the image of Jesus, well, Jesus was a man of power, and the expectation is we're going to be men and women of power as well. Let me kind of sidetrack off of this a little bit. If you look at the life of Paul, I think there might be some some insight into when God says yes. No, that's not true. I think there might be some insight into the yes and no's when it comes to power. Paul was a guy, he performed miracles. This is just a few verses um, about him. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time in this particular place speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. This is Paul talking about himself. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. If you read through the New Testament, Paul planted a lot of churches. He was super fruitful. He, heard, he had visions of angels telling him, go this way. Go. To, his conversion, he's knocked off a horse. He hears a voice from heaven. There's a bright light. He goes blind for three days. Then God heals him of his blindness. I mean, his life is marked by these spectacular things. He raised a guy from the dead. He, there was a guy who could see, who Paul prayed for him to become blind because he was leading someone astray. It happened. A guy who could never walk. Paul touches him, and the guy can walk. I mean, he's, there's something there. You know, when we're talking about powerful people or these guys that kind of have this miraculous or supernatural or spectacular life. Paul's got to be in the top three, for sure. He did a lot of stuff. Listen to how he describes himself. It's 2 Corinthians. It'll be on the screen. He's comparing himself to these false teachers. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. I've worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. If you look over in verse 12, he tells this story, or chapter 12, excuse me, about having this great vision. And it says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, nobody knows exactly what that was, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's just a fancy way of saying no. That's all that is. That's the answer. No, I won't take it away from you. So we had this guy on one hand, all these miracles, this supernatural life, all of this power. And on the other hand, he's got something that God won't take away from him that's driving him crazy, that torments him. He's been beaten up countless times, naked, hungry, shipwrecked, all of that stuff. It's a weird tension to hold both of those things together. You see the same thing in the life of Jesus. That was one of the accusations they hurled at him when he's on the cross. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Get down and then we'll believe you. He says that you'll say that about me. Physician, heal yourself. And he didn't do it. God told him no. Please take this cup from me. No. you got to die. There's, the, again, this weird tension. and It's hard to know when have we made it. I don't think we've ever made it where all of our prayers are always, it's not an immediate yes. Ever. Philippians 3.10, Paul says this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I think you see both, both things there. The deal is to know Jesus. We've said that, John seventeen three. This is eternal life, knowing him. And we can know him in the power of his resurrection. We can know him in the quick yes, in the spectacular, in the um, clear. Yes, God will heal your body now. He will set you free from addiction now. He will give you direction now. He'll open your eyes now. He'll reconcile your relationship now. He can do all of that right now. That's the power of his resurrection. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, all of death, all of sin, and all of the things that fall under that have been defeated. And we have victory there. And we can taste that and experience that right now. And, on the other hand, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There's a no as well. I don't know this from experience. I've just, this is my belief. I'm wondering more than anything else. I see couples who've been married for 40 or 50 years. They're advanced and aged, and one of their health is failing physically or their mind is going, and I watch the other one take care, the one who's still healthy taking care of the other. I've been married for about 14 years. I love my wife. I know her. I've never changed her diaper. I've never fed her. I've never put her in a wheelchair. I think there might be a difference in the knowing and the loving that comes with suffering together with somebody. I think there's a depth of knowing and loving that we can only experience through suffering. And for Jesus, he wants us us to know him as well as we possibly can. And at some point, that's going to mean suffer. If you read through Romans 8, that's a theme that runs through. We're victorious. We're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And running through all of that is, you're going to suffer. You're going to. At some point, all of us are going to hear a no. And it's not just a not yet. It's a flat no. I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to heal it. It's not going to get better. You're going to suffer in the midst of this. And for us, as people who we want to be people of compassion and kindness and power, we need to recognize that the deal with all of that is knowing Jesus better. And we can know him in the power of his resurrection, and we need to know him in his sufferings as well. I'm not giving you permission to be a martyr. That's the last thing some of you need. More reason to think God doesn't love you and is not going to work in your life. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying at times, and I don't know when, the answer is going to be no. And for us, we need to recognize that in the no, we can still come to know him, K-N-O-W, better we need to grab onto that and pursue that in the midst of those struggles and sufferings and hopefully they'll end. I don't think you ever have unless God tells you no the way he told Paul, keep going. Until you hear that clearly, keep asking. If at some point he wants to make it plain to you, he's not going to answer, he'll speak that very clearly to you. Outside of that, there's no reason to stop asking and stop pursuing him to work in that area of your life. So there's this whole spectacular arena that we tend to pull back from when it comes to power because we don't understand it. And my encouragement is just don't. You're not going to understand it. Nobody fully does. If they tell you they do, they're lying. Just step in. There's mystery involved. There's mystery involved. He's bigger than us. If we had it all figured out, he wouldn't be very impressive as a God. But don't allow the fact that sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's not yet, and sometimes it's no to keep you from engaging God, the Holy Spirit lives within you. There's power within you. You can pray for people, and they can be healed immediately. They might not be, but they can be. And unless you give it a shot, they don't have a shot. But then there's this whole other arena of what it means to be powerful. I think we often think spectacular. There's also, this is from Luke 17. Listen to this. So Jesus is talking to his disciples about sin. And he says this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The disciples' response, increase our faith. Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea,' and it will obey you. And we hear that. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, Mulberry tree, mountain, get thrown away. We think spectacular. That's what comes to our mind. That means I can do spectacular things. The context here is for forgiveness. Pretty mundane. We need power to do something as common as forgiving other people. God's power is not just for the spectacular, it's for everything He asks us to do. This whole picture of forgiveness in the body of Christ, not just here at Stonebridge. We mess this up all the time. You come and punch me in the face. And then you ask me for forgiveness, and my Sunday school response is, yes, I forgive you. I still hate you because you punched me in the face. And you humiliated me, and because I've forgiven you, I can't punch you back, but I certainly hope somebody else does. That's my, that's what we do. And it doesn't work. Love keeps no record of wrongs. We've got a list. It might have a pencil line through it, but it's not erased. You know, and some of you who are married, you know this. When you pull out the haymaker, that means you haven't forgiven. It's true. You know you have your go-to in an argument. And you pull that thing out. If you pull it, then you have not forgiven. You're still keeping a record. And you're in this cycle. Forgiveness breaks that cycle, and you can't do it on your, and that's where we fail. We can't do it on our own. I think I'm supposed to forgive you because you asked. Yes, I am. But I try to do that in my own strength, and I can't because I hate you and because you hurt me, and I want you to suffer. That's human nature. I need God's power to overcome that, to say, you know what? I'm not going to hold you in judgment. I'm not going to try to get back at you, and I don't want anyone else to get back at you. I'm going to pray for you instead of cursing you. I'm going to bless you instead of cursing you. That's not a natural response. As wonderful as a person you are, you can't do that on your own. You need His power to do that. That's why the disciples say, increase our faith. You mean if somebody sins against me seven times in one day, I'm supposed to forgive them every single time? They, get, they understood what that meant. They're an eye-for-an-eye an eye culture. And He's saying, no, no more eyes-for-eyes. Eyes. They take yours and you forgive them. And they take it seven times and you forgive them seven times. They get it. And that's why, the, what? Increase our faith. For We talked about last week, Acts 1-8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will receive power when he does. And then you'll be my witness. This is all of this that we're talking about. Telling people, sharing with people who Jesus is. That's not something we do in our own strength. There's power. This is one of my favorite verses, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. So we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things that your faith prompts you to do. May God give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. If you're a Christian, you trust Jesus. And trusting in Jesus should affect the, dis- the choices and the decisions you make on a daily basis. And as it does, that trust affects your decisions. What Paul is saying is, ask God to give you power to do those things. Some of you are in positions of responsibility in your businesses. You're sweating bullets. Where's the work going to come from? Do I hire this guy? Do I let this guy go? Do I move in this direction or not? And you feel like all of that weight is on you. Paul is saying, ask God to give you the power to make the right choice in that. Some of you, it's family stuff. For some of you, it's personal. In all of these areas, anything your faith prompts you to do, ask God to give you the power to do that. Anything you do in your own strength, by definition, can only bring you glory. If you do it in your own strength, then you haven't done it in God's strength, so how can he get credit for something you've done apart from him? He can't. So we either do things in our flesh or in the Spirit, in our own strength or in His strength. Whether it's forgiveness, which seems mundane, or whether it's spectacular, somebody being healed immediately. Both of those things, if they're to give God glory, we have to recognize He's the source of power for that. Ask Him to equip you and empower you. Don't feel like there's this whole set of things that you have to do on your own. You're super talented. It's wonderful. But don't allow the fact that you're super talented to, think, to make you believe there's this whole set of stuff you can do without Him. It's all going to rot. No matter how good, it's all going to rot because it was done in your flesh. And your flesh is temporary, again, by definition. The Spirit is eternal, and the things that we do in Him last and ultimately bring Him glory. So we've got compassion, we've got kindness, we've got power. Compassion motivates us. Some of you have it, some of you don't. Kindness is how we act. Some of you have it, some of you don't. Empower is the ability to act, whether that's spectacular or just regular. We need his spirit to empower and, it, and actually, it's not that some of us have it, some of us don't. We all have it. Just there's some of these things that we don't allow to really function in our lives. It's not who we naturally are, and so we tend to pull back. The Holy Spirit's the spirit of compassion. He lives in your heart. One of the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. He will produce that in you. And again, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. You have all of those things. just a matter of walking in all of those things. A couple of things, and then we'll close, from this feeding of the 4,000 that will help, I hope, keep us on the road. My question, I don't get why this story is in the Bible. It's a sequel that's not as good as the original. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. He feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. Still a big deal, but less people, more food. I don't... John says that if everything Jesus did was written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold a record of all of these deeds. So if that's the case, why do you put this in here? Again, it doesn't make sense to me. If you want to show that Jesus can feed a lot of people with a little food, you've already done that. So why would you do it again, again, in a less impressive way? I think there are a couple of things. One is verse 4. So Jesus asks his disciples, or brings this point to his disciples. If you go back and read the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6, the disciples bring the need to Jesus. They instigate this, hey, these guys are hungry. Stop talking. Let them go eat. This time it's Jesus. These guys have been with me for three days, they have been listening to me. We need to do something about this. And so the disciples say to him, Where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? What they're saying is, what are you going to do about it? That's it. This fancy way of saying, what are you going to do? You've brought this need up. What are you going to do about it? So either the disciples are incredibly dumb or have a very short memory, or there's something else going on. They have to remember what Jesus did. It's two chapters ago. However many days or weeks, even if it's months, you're not going to forget him feeding 5,000 people with a kid's lunch. So for them to say, what are you going to do about it? Again, I don't think they forgot what happened. I think they are actually being perceptive. They recognize something about Jesus, and it's that he rarely does the same thing in the same way twice. Almost never. Healing blind people. Sometimes he speaks. Sometimes he touches their eyes. One time he, he makes mud with his spit and wipes it on the dude's eyes and says, go wash in this particular pool. Another time he wipes clay on a guy's eyes and he can see partially. And then Jesus touches him again and he can see all the way. He never does it the same way. And I think the disciples get that. They know what he did weeks or months ago, feeding the 5,000, whenever that actually occurred. They just don't know what he's going to do this time. If you read the book of Joshua, you read 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, where there are these battles and these wars going on. God hardly ever gives the same battle plan twice. Almost never. It's different every time. He knows us, and he knows we're technique-oriented people. And if he gives us a checklist, we're just going to check the boxes, and we're going to leave him out of it. All right, this is what I do. I spit on the ground, and then I make mud, and I put this much mud on a guy's eye, and I say this, and I spin around three times, and he can open them. He has no part of that anymore. It's just me. I've divorced his work from a relationship with him. He doesn't give us that option. That's why he always does things different. He wants to keep us close. He wants to keep us trusting him. I want the safe route. Give me the checklist that is guaranteed to work every time. He doesn't do that. He says, follow me. Sometimes it's going to work. Sometimes there's a yes. Sometimes there's a no. And you don't know when it's going to happen either way. Do you trust me? That's it. And for that causes a lot of us to pull back. And I just want you to know going in, he doesn't do the same thing twice. The past is not necessarily an indicator of the future. You don't have to wear the same shirt. I had a great day today and God spoke to me. So you don't have to wake up at the same time. You don't have to eat the same thing for breakfast. You don't have to say the same prayer. God's not hes not a vending machine. You put in the right amount of money and you push push the button and you get it. It's not how he works. He's He's personal. He's massively creative. But I don't think he's just showing his creativity. He wants us to get relationship. Stay connected to me. I'll I'll lead you. Stay connected to me. Again, he knows us well enough to know that if we get the blueprint, then we don't need him anymore. So keep that in mind as you walk forward, person of compassion and kindness and power. The second thing, look at at those last couple of verses. The Pharisees come, they question him, they ask him for a sign from heaven. He sighs deeply, says you're not going to get one. And then he gets into a boat. I don't know what they need to see. They weren't there at the feeding of the 4,000. They heard about it. They heard about the feeding of the 5,000. They probably heard about him walking on water and calming a storm. They'd definitely seen him heal a paralytic and some blind folks and some other crippled people. They'd heard him preach. What else do they need? This idea of a sign in this passage is really uh, prove it. Show me that you're trustworthy. They're not looking for power. They're looking for a guarantee. Let us see something from heaven that will allow us to know that what you're saying and what you're doing is really true. That's what they're looking for. Proof, a guarantee. Not, again, not more miracles, but something that will allow them to know that he truly is sent from God. The thing with signs is they always point in the direction that we were already headed. We see what we want to see. I was in college. I was a junior. There were six of us that wanted to live together our senior year. And there were several, there among us, there were a lot of restrictions. Some, two guys wanted their own rooms. So we needed four rooms. One guy was broke. He said, I can pay $150 a month, and he wanted his own room. So we had to find a dump that could hold all of us. One guy didn't have a car, and so he needed to live close to the campus. And there were six of us. Five of us were pretty strong Christians. One guy was kind of was walking away from the Lord at that point. He'd been a Christian through high school and in college. And at that point, he was saying he was a journalism guy, and he was saying, prove it to me, God. I want to know objectively that you are real. And so we said, hey, let's do this. Let's give God a test. Here are these requirements for moving into a house, which to us, seemed, it seemed like a lot at the time. So let's just pray and ask God to give us a house that meets everything on this list. And when he does, then we'll know that he heard our prayer, that he's active, that he's alive, that he does things. Okay, everybody agreed on that going in. So we pray, and I think within two weeks, we get a call, and a guy says, I got a house. It's got enough room for all of us. It meets the rent requirements. It's close enough to the campus, the own rooms, everything, everything that we need. So we get back together and say, hey, what do you think, man? This is, God answered this prayer. He says, no. What? Everything on the checklist. He says, no. Why not? Because I knew the guy that made the phone call. One of the, another guy who we graduated from high school with had roommates. They were all moving out. He was looking for new guys, and he called us and said, hey, do y'all want to come live here? And because we knew him, then it was just a coincidence, or it was our connections, or it was luck, but it couldn't be the Lord. The signs point whatever way you're already headed. I saw that as God answering prayer. He saw it as, I don't know if he wanted God to make a house appear, in the. I don't know what he wanted, (laughs) but it didn't work. His heart was hardened towards God, and that just hardened it even more. Jesus says, you have eyes, but you don't see, and ears, but you don't hear, and hearts that don't understand. Your hearts have grown callous, and that's what was happening with him. His heart was getting callous, and what I saw as divine activity, he did not, and that just made his heart get even harder. Actually, the answered prayer, in a sense, if I can say it this way, was bad for him. The Bible sometimes talks about heaping coals on someone's head. That's what happened. You saw this, and you rejected even, that's why Jesus is so put out with these guys. What else do you want to see? What else can I say? It has nothing to do with science. That's why he won't respond. There's no faith in their hearts. They're hostile to him. They're hostile to what God is doing among them, and they're just trying to rub his nose in it. He's not going to play. And he says no, and he leaves. And if you look at his interactions with them over the rest of the time, they're not good. They're openly hostile towards him, and he honestly responds in kind. Because their hearts have been hardened. They don't want to see the truth. And I think that's another thing for us to hang on to. If we, This whole idea of being people of compassion and kindness and power, we need to realize that the signs, they're not enough. People's hearts have to be opened as well. And there are times where you're going to say, look what God did. And that person that you're pouring yourselves out for, they're going to say, that was just luck, it was Advil, or whatever it is. And what you need to say is, Okay, you don't have to get in a huff and get in the boat and leave. They're not, it's a different relationship than Jesus had with the religious leaders. But you need to recognize you don't have responsibility beyond that. You don't have to be God's defense attorney. You don't have to try to, to convince somebody, this really was God. What you can do is just pray. God, open their eyes, open their ears, soften their heart. And just know going in, sometimes when we've said this before, when we're soft, when we're, God can use his hands. When we're hard, he uses a hammer and a chisel. And some people are hard. And that's what it looks like. And it's painful to love somebody who's getting hammered. But ultimately, it's so their hearts can be open. And then they will see this is who God is, this is what He's doing. This is Matthew 11. We'll close with this. You know what? We won't. Let's just close. Let's pray.